But God continues to lead us from his word. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Let my lips utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. Let my tongue sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live that it may praise you, and let your ordinances help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Brothers and sisters, let's now give attention to the preaching of the word of God. God, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi. And in your notes is, is an outline. I encourage you to lo- locate that and follow along, take notes. We're on the 16th and final um, prophetic epistle given to us by God in his word. And uh, Malachi is um, glorious transitional prophecy as we'll be seeing this morning, the coming weeks, for us, God's people, in, this, in, the, in these last days, this new covenant era. So we're going to look at this, and uh, this morning the intention is simply to, to summarize, or to summarize, to, to introduce it, so we're not going to get very far in our study of this book. However, I hope that in the foundation of what we laid this morning serves as the, um, a great um, filter and, and a, a background against which we can study this book uh, together. So brothers and sisters, this is... God's will, let me ask you to stand together as we read uh, Malachi 1, verse 1. Hear now the reading of God's word. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege that is ours, indeed, our extreme privilege of of worshiping you each, each week. At a time and a place, Lord, not yet in the U.S. at least, that we can come with freedom and worship you according to your word without fear of reproach. God, we praise you for this, this day of, of, of fellowship, this day of rest and refreshment in you, and this moment of worship where we are giving you our lives. And Lord, now as we come and hear from you, from your word, hear your word, and so fellowship with you around it. God, we pray you bless this time. Grant us unction and power, even in an introduction, that we might indeed fellowship and be the people you've called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I may be the only one, but I doubt it. Can you identify with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Brothers and sisters, when I was saved 40 uh, years now, almost 40 years ago, um, I was a nobody in the world's eyes. And it's been 40 years, and I'm still a nobody in the world's eyes. And in the context of the kingdom of God, I dare say I'm a nobody in the kingdom of God, in the context of American Christianity. I'm one who struggles. 
I struggle with obedience. Romans 7 is a passage, a, a, a portion of scripture which resonates with me. I struggle with, with, with diligence in my service. I struggle with practical faith. Trusting God in the crucible. I struggle, brothers and sisters, with loving God, not because of who he is, but because of the things he gives me. And I struggle very much so by being a person moved by God, his character, and his will, rather than being moved by the will and opinions and worries and criticisms horizontally. I struggle. I struggle there. And that is why I am so grateful for a prophecy like the book of Malachi. Malachi was written in the trough, written in the valley of redemptive history. Think of two mountains. On the one hand, you've got the theocracy, where God gave 13 prophetic witnesses. And then with the destruction of the theocracy, in between that, that high point in redemptive history, in revelation history, where First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Chronicles, and all those prophets, and most of the Psalter, and much of the wisdom uh, literature, were all given between that high point and the new covenant era with Jesus Christ. God's people entered into a 500-year slump where you really only have three prophetic witnesses all at the beginning. Malachi a little bit more into it. And thus God's people were to live in between these humdrum, in between at a time when, when it seemed as though God's redemptive work was in that humdrum era. Today is the same as yesterday, and tomorrow will be the same as uh, today. Joyce Baldwin writes about this book, Malachi's prophecy is particularly relevant to the many waiting periods in human history and in the lives of individuals. He enables us to see the strains and temptations of such times. The imperceptible abrasion of faith that ends in cynicism because it has lost touch with the living God. Even more important, he shows the way back to a genuine, enduring faith in the God who does not change, who invites men to return to him, and never forgets those who respond. This book is, is a gem if you find yourself at times growing weary in your servants of the Lord. Growing weary in faith. Growing tired of faith. Struggling with, with what drives you. Malachi is a glorious exhortation for us that God gave to his people at this time. This morning, it's not my intention to begin in earnest with this book. As we, Next time, we'll get through two through five. But today, I simply want to introduce to you this incredible prophecy. And we'll look at the dating, the background, the prophetic, the, the prophet, the date, the religious, the political background of this prophecy. So let's begin. Back, chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord. Now, you know this word oracle very well. It's the same word used in throughout the Old Testament. Now, our problem with the word oracle is in the English, if I gave you a piece of paper and said, give me some, some synonyms for the word oracle, you might give revelation, you might give the word of God, you might give an announcement from God, whatever you might put will not include a burden. And that's the word in the Hebrew. The word in the Hebrew for oracle is not the word for revelation, it's the word for a burden. 
A burden that rests upon man. For you and me, the word of God is a burden. But it's a delightful burden. The burden to, to know it, to study it, to seek to live in light of it, to be a, a people by, uh, by which, through which, in which, God, through his spirit, by his word, molds and shapes us. Brothers and sisters, that's the burden of the word of God. To the non-believer, the word of God is a burden in the sense that it will be the basis upon which they're judged. They can neglect it, they can reject it, but they will be judged by it. But for the prophet, the apostle, the man who was called by God to give revelation, it was a burden in the sense that they were called to faithfully proclaim it, even though it would mean persecution, violence, and difficulty. Remember Samuel, the very first revelational, uh, re- revelation given to this young prophet. He didn't want to share it. First Samuel chapter um, three, we read Samuel received the vision of the Lord and he said, so Sam, and we read, so Samuel laid down until morning. I remember reading that the first time thinking, man, if I got that message, I go share it. No, he laid down till morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord as if nothing had happened in the previous night. But Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Brothers and sisters, the word of God came as a burden to the prophets because many of them knew that if I proclaim God's word, I'll be persecuted. It was hard and it was heavy. And Malachi was one such prophet. Now, who is Malachi? There's debate in Bible commentaries. Is this a real prophet or is this just a title? For example, in chapter 3, verse 1, where I'm going to end with, it's a title. It's a description that, of that, that God gives as a calling and responsibility that he places upon people. So the question is, is this really a man or is this just a title given to a man who gave this? Well, brothers and sisters, there are a lot of people on both sides of the argument. I hold to the traditional view that the word Malachi is in reference to um, a messenger named Malachi. His name was Malachi. In the Hebrew, the word is um, um, Malachi, and it comes from the root Malach, which refers to a message. So to, to be a messenger, to be named a messenger was an incredible, uh, glorious calling as a parent naming their child. People go, no, this isn't a name because in the rest of the Hebrew Bible, it nowhere is recorded as a Hebrew name. But such is the case for Habakkuk and Jonah. And so um, the argument is there. I'll let you research it um, on your own if you want to. Um, But I'm going to hold that this man is the prophet who wrote this book, Malachi. Um, He wrote it in 444. That's my uh, contention. Brothers and sisters, even amongst liberals, there is little debate that Malachi was written in the 5th century B.C. No debate on that one. Joel, boy, there's debate on that one. Right? When was Joel written? But Malachi, hands down, 5th century B.C. The debate comes, is it 560? Or, I'm sorry, 460? Is it 444? Or is it 433 after 433? Once again, I'll let you do the research. I hold the 444 because I believe Malachi wrote after Nehemiah. It all depends on, your, on where, if you study it, where you place Malachi in relation to Ezra and Nehemiah's ministry. That being said, let me give you the political background of Malachi. A quick running start here. And for that, we're going to start in 539 B.C. with the coming of Cyrus the Great. So in 539, Babylon fell. Nabonidus was the last uh, ruler of um, Babylon. He was insane. He moved the capital city from Babylon to the oasis of Tamar in the Arabian desert, and he took with him most or the primary deities of Babylon. 
Now, most people felt that that was offensive to most people in Babylon, of course, and to the, and to the empire, especially those who were mindful of the gods because they feared, of course, they'd be cursed. And so they were upset at Nabonidus. There was a massive rebellion, massive revolt. So when Cyrus conquered Babylon in 539, and he learned about this, he fancied himself, he projected himself as a religious liberator. Notice the words of George Klein. Cyrus sought to promote the religious traditions of each nation, granting Persia funds and posturing himself as the most devoted follower of each and every deity. Unlike Nabonidus, Cyrus wished that the conquered peoples would view him, in contrast to Nabonidus, as a faithful worshiper of their national deities. This policy thus allowed diverse peoples under Persian control to exercise a significant measure of self-governance as well as to retain their cultural and religious identity. And that's exactly why in 539 or 538 B.C., Cyrus gave the decree for God's people to go back. Now, brothers and sisters, this is unprecedented in the ancient world. You see the hand of God working in this man with Nabonidus. Little did you know, little would we have known at that time, that this crazy emperor is necessary for God's people to go home. Because it was that very thing that, that, that led Cyrus, unlike every other king before him, who would have said what he did was stupid and foolish to say, Jews, go back home and I'm going to give you money and I'm going to give you all your treasures. Go do it. So God's people, as you know, did. In 537, they returned back to Palestine only to find it a thousand times worse than they could have ever imagined. And so they set their focus on building their own homes, not building the temple and living it up. Cyrus died in 530. So just seven years later, his son, or not his son, another person comes along, Darius, becomes then the emperor, the, the king of Persia. Darius at this point is the one who began attacking Greece. This becomes important. So during this time, Darius begins attacking Greece. The first wars against Greece start taking place. The Battle of Marathon is taking place here. You know about Marathon. That's where we get the idea of a marathon in the Olympics. Um, he also was the one to whom the Jews, after Zechariah and Haggai came on the scene, 520, prompted God's people to start building. So the locals got upset, began writing to the Persian king saying, what's going on? And Darius had to handle the, the conflicts and the issues of Palestine. It was Darius. Well, he died in 486. His son became king at that point. 486 to 465, his birth was 518. Xerxes is important in the Bible because he's the Old Testament Ahasuerus. He's the king who married Esther. So if you want to read about Esther and about this king, you can read about it in Esther. But he's the king who married Esther. He's also the king who, anytime kings um, entered into their regency in the ancient world, typically it brought with it civil war. And that certainly happened with Xerxes. The Egyptians rebelled against the Persians. And so Xerxes had, the first thing he had to do out of the get-go was to address Egypt. And he did forcefully, quickly, and well. So he fancied himself as a world conqueror, carrying on the policies of Darius. So he continued to attack Greece. So around this time, when he became king in the midst of marrying Esther, he goes and attacks Greece. And this is where you read about Thermopylae 
and the 300 Spartans plus Greeks who held the past. And the only reason why they did that, they knew it was a death sentence. They held the past so that would, it would give the city-states of Greece enough time to get their forces together to withstand the Persian attack under Xerxes. Well, guess what? They did. And um, that led to the Battle of Salamis, which uh, was a naval battle where Persia's uh, um, um, entire naval fleet was wiped out, 200 ships sunk. So Xerxes had had enough of that. He decided to go back home. He left Greece in the hands of some able generals who themselves once again got destroyed in, in five, uh, 479. Once again, they got destroyed at the Battle of Mycal. And, uh, and so basically, the rest of um, Xerxes' regency was spent giving to the flesh, giving into the flesh, enjoying the, the uh, pleasures of the flesh, all the while having this constant nagging problem with Greece and Egypt. Okay? Um, during this time, there's a lot of silence with what's going on in God's word and redemptive history. But that all ends when we get to Artaxerxes, his son. His son, 465, becomes king, reigns to 424, which is the era of Malachi, which is the era of our book. Artaxerxes, when he became king, he was once again inherited all the problems of Greece, all the problems of Egypt, and what he didn't need and the thing he didn't want most of all were these little pesty flies flying around his face called the problems of Palestine. So anytime there was a problem with Palestine and they wrote back to Persia, it was just this nagging problem in the context against the backdrop of Egypt and Greece. So Artaxerxes was very happy for any help in quelling the problems of Palestine. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly what would happen um, under his regency. That brings us to the religious. So that's the political history. A quick, um, let's look at the religious cultural setting. And to do that, brothers and sisters, I want to begin by saying this. If there is relative silence historically, redemptively, for God's people from 516 to 458 BC. We don't know what was going on in Palestine during this time, but we have a great supposition. We have some good, accurate, or, or, or good um, guesses. And we know it because of what happened under Ezra. When we catch up to Ezra 458 B.C., we have a good idea what was going on socially, politically, religiously. And to set it up, every commentary I have deals with this issue. God in Ezekiel, go back in your minds to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 8 through 11, Ezekiel graphically describes the Shekinah glory of God leaving the temple. But later on in the chapter, or later on in the book, Ezekiel 43, 4, listen to it. And the glory of the Lord, Ezekiel has a vision of the returning glory of God to the temple. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by way of the, the gate facing toward the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Family of God, we understand, I studied this with you in, when we looked at Ezekiel. This is not in reference to the literal temple. But the people of God, we wouldn't fault them for thinking it was. So get this, the literal temple was, the second temple was built in 520, finished, or began in 520, finished in 516, to the expectation of the people of God who were aware of Ezekiel, that the Shekinah glory would come back to the temple, and we would be the people he's called us to be once again. But the Shekinah glory never came back. Never came back. 
So you can imagine the disappointment. And that is what characterizes from 516 all the way down in and through Ezra and Nehemiah's era. Massive disappointment in God. Massive disappointment in his providence and his sovereignty. Massive disappointment. What is God doing with us? Why is he doing it with us? Why is he doing what he's doing? In fact, far from God's glory coming to the temple during this time, God's people in Palestine lived in, in constant poverty with, in, with internal and external threats, affliction, famine, and much, much more. The impact that this had on their fervor and passion for the Lord was massive. The people when, whom Malachi served had become bored with God, lackadaisical in their walk, and, com- and uh, uh, compromised in their service. Joyce Baldwin wrote these words. Whereas most of the prophets lived and prophesied in days of change and political upheaval, Malachi and his contemporaries were living in an uneventful waiting period. When God seemed to have forgotten his people enduring poverty and foreign domination in the little province of Judah. Zerubbabel and Joshua, whom Haggai and Zechariah had indicated as God's chosen men for the new age, had died. True that the temple had been completed, but nothing momentous had occurred to indicate that God, God's presence had returned to fill it with glory, as Ezekiel had, had indicated would happen, Ezekiel 43, we just read it. The day of miracles had passed with Elijah and Elisha. The round of religious duties continued to be carried on, but without enthusiasm. Where was the God of their fathers? And did it really matter whether one served him or not? Brothers and sisters, that is this era in Malachi. And why I love this book so much, it's been such a minister to my heart already, is because that is exactly where we are living right now. Right? Christ has come back. First advent. Praise God for the cross. He ascended. And now we're waiting. We're in the exact same place as Malachi's audience waiting in this time of in-between two climactic redemptive events, the first coming and the second coming. And we've been waiting now not for a couple hundred years or 100 years like Malachi's people. We've been waiting now 2,000 years. Does it really matter in our service of God? Does he even care? Does he know? Does he look? Does he love you? Does he care what goes on in your life? That's the issues that God's people were dealing with when Malachi was, was written. So this book comes as an incredible balm of grace to the souls of God's people to assure them that God does care, that God has them right where he wants them to be, and that their problem is, is they're looking horizontally and not eternally, not vertically, not at God. We'll see this as we go through this incredible prophecy. However, before we do that, I do want to give you some of the running history, more specific, with the two returns. You can, if you'd like, to turn back to Ezra, um, right before the Psalms. Ezra and Nehemiah are the two books giving us the history, the backdrop for Malachi. So if you go back to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra is a key player. So I'm going to talk to you about the three returns. The first return was in five Um, 38 BC when God's people um, came back to Palestine. There were three exiles, 605, 597, 586. There's three returns. 
538, we already looked at. Now this time, 458 under Ezra. Ezra was a priest and a scribe. And he had enough power in Persia to approach Artaxerxes I and ask him not just if he could go back to Palestine, but if he could go with the full resources of Persia behind him. Eugene Merrill gave the explanation. You've got the, the words. Ezra received permission from Artaxerxes I to lead an exilic band back to Jerusalem. The Persian king authorized him to do virtually whatever he desired. Incredible. And the trans-Euphratian um, provinces, including Judah. Artaxerxes viewed a loyal Judean province as an important asset for his anticipated disciplinary actions against Egypt. And what better way to ensure Judean loyalty than to allow Ezra, no doubt a highly popular and powerful Jewish leader, to reestablish Jewish life and culture in that little land that was so crucial to Persian success. So because of all the problems with Greece and Egypt, when Ezra came forward, he saw this as an answer to my prayer. Ezra, go, here's money. If you don't use that money for whatever I've given it to, use it for whatever you want. Blank check. Incredible. So he goes back. And we pick it up in Ezra chapter 9, and what Ezra comes back to is shocking. It was a lot worse than he could have ever dreamt. Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. Now, when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land, according to, to their abominations. Those are the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians. And the Amorites, I always call them the Ite brothers, right? All the Ites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy nation has intermingled with the peoples of the land. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. In fact, on top of it, it's the leaders doing it most. Ezra got this reward as soon as he got there. It's bad. And then he receives this. And immediately, if you look at the text, that brings him to his knees. And he spends time praying and praying and praying and confessing his sins and pleading to God in his grace and his mercies. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, seeing this, this, this man of God who people would have known, this famous man come to Judah. Man, this is the Ezra from Babylon, you're right? Praying and being so burdened, it, it convicted God's people. So we pick it up in verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Now, while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of, the, of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children, gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly. So they're impacted. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Alam, answered and said to Ezra, we have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God. Let's, let's, let's renew our faith. Let's have a covenant renewal ceremony with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to his law. Now, brothers and sisters, that sounds great. You read that, you go, wow, God's working. And that's exciting. God was working. These people clearly are prompted, uh, uh, cut to their, the quick, and they come to Ezra. And Ezra is encouraged by it. And so we read on, verse 10. Then Ezra, the priest, stood up and said to them, You've been unfaithful. You've married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. 
Now therefore, make confession to the Lord your God, the, the God of your fathers, and do his will, and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly, this is huge, answered and said with, with a loud voice, that's right. As you have said, so it is our duty to do. We're going to do it. Now that was very positive. Until you read the next verse, which you don't have on your, in your notes, or at least on the, on the overhead. If you're there, the next verse. But, huge but, there are many people, and it's the rainy season, and we're not able to stand in the open, nor can the task be done in one or two days, for we've transgressed greatly in this matter. So what do you say that you appoint leaders in each town and all the families who have, who, who have intermarried can come up and come before them and be judged and the whole bit? What do you say we do that? And that sounded good to Ezra. Brothers and sisters, learn a lesson. Delayed obedience is disobedience. They're delaying this. They're saying, hey, we're going to put this off. It's rainy. Can we address this when it's not so rainy? And we'll do it in groups and cities because it's so such a big deal. So guess what? You read on. That's exactly what happened. They appointed leaders. The leaders had the people come before them. And the end of chapter 10, 18 through 44, is a, is a laundry list of all the leaders who have compromised and their children who have compromised. And we leave Ezra imagining that that's exactly what happened. They had this wonderful time of renewal, covenant renewal. Brothers and sisters, it was only mouth deep. This renewal didn't do anything. They didn't necessarily leave their wives because Nehemiah, when he comes back, has to address this very same issue. So get this. Isn't this such much like our day? Brothers and sisters, man, what do you say? Man, our church is struggling. Let's get a new program. Yeah, that'll change it. So you start this program, and that runs its course. And then you start another program, and that runs its course. And all the while, there's fervor and excitement, but nothing's changed. Nothing's changing in our lives. Brothers and sisters, what these people needed was a, was a, a working of the Spirit of God to rest heavily upon them unto repentance and faith, where they turn from their sin and, and cling to Jesus Christ. But that's not what happened. They went through the religious motions. They formed their committees. And their committees did a study uh, 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 for two, uh, two or three months. We gave a report, announced it, and everyone clapped and, and cheered and said, that's great, but nothing changed. The hard hearts, the shallow walk with God remained the same. And then we pick it up 13 years later. 445 B.C. Artaxerxes is still having problems with the Greeks. You can read about it online. You can read about it in books. Still dealing with different battles in, in, with the Greeks. Still dealing with the Egyptian problem. And Palestine is embroiled as it never has been before. I mean, the same as it's always been. All these issues going on, these little pesky flies. Artaxerxes needs another person. Ezra didn't get the job done, and he didn't. So, in fact... Eugene Merle, one may assume that conditions throughout Syria and Palestine were chaotic after 449 and that they were desperate need for strong leadership there, particularly hard hit was Judah. Not only must it have suffered the ravages of rebellion and counter-rebellion, but it was constantly under attack verbally, if not physically, from the Samaritans and their allies. So about this time, Artaxerxes' cupbearer. Now the cupbearer was the most important job in that entire kingdom. 
because he was the one who made sure that no one poisoned the king. He had to try everything the king ate or drank. And because of that, the cupbearer typically had a close relationship with the king. And sometimes that relationship verged on friendship, as it was the case here. Artaxerxes' cupbearer was a Jewish gentleman by the name of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah had a brother who had visited Palestine and came back. And they reported to Nehemiah a report that was so discouraging, it, it, just, it just blowed Nehemiah away. Nehemiah 1, if you want to turn there, Nehemiah 1.1, 1, 1, you can read it up here. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, that I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, Hanani uh, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came and and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. In other words, it is not good. Judaism as we know it is failing in Judah. The people of God are in massive compromise and the walls of the Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Brothers and sisters, this burdened Nehemiah so much that he risked his life. He's before the king, and he couldn't let his emotions, not let, he couldn't keep his emotions in. So he's serving with a long face, and the king could have killed him on the spot, but clearly they had a better relationship. So Artaxerxes, in essence, says, why the long face, Nehemiah? What's going on? And we pick it up, Nehemiah 2, verse 4. Then the king said to him, what would you want me to do? So Nehemiah says, oh, I got this word from my brother. It's horrible. What do you want me to do? So I prayed to the God of, of heaven at that moment. And I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may re, re, rebuild it. In other words, let me go. Now, Artaxerxes has an answer to prayer like no one's business. He's still having that problem. And here he has this wonderful trusted ally. You got it, buddy. So he sends him. And Nehemiah comes with the full support and power of Persia behind him. And he enters into Palestine to, to find it, once again, worse than he could have ever imagined. He had a political mess and a, and a, and a uh, um, religious mess on his hands. First, the political. There were three Persian governors. I'm not saying they were Persian by nationality, but they were governors who Persia recognized as governors over Palestine, in Palestine. Those three governors were Sanballat. He was over the Syria in uh, Samaria. I think I've got these in your notes. Do I not? I do. Um, Tobiah. It's believed he could have been Jewish. If he's not Jewish, he married a Jew. Tobiah was the Persian governor charged with overseeing the Ammonites. And the last one is Geshem, who was an Arab, and he was the Persian governor assigned to keep peace over the Arabian tribe that had settled south of Palestine. So these three governors, Persian governors, and again, not by race, but by um, office, Persian authorized governors were over Palestine, and they had a good thing going. When Nehemiah comes on the scene, that man represents change, massive change. And if Jerusalem gets that wall built, they become a power like, like they've not had before as governors that they've seen. So these three governors oppose Nehemiah. In fact, 
Tobiah was the worst of them. He tried assassinating Nehemiah multiple times. He's always contradicting him, always persecuting him. Brothers and sisters, Nehemiah hit the ground and he rebuilt the city walls in 52 days. The temple took four years. Wow, what a leader. What an incredible leader. 52 days, done. And then from that point on, you can pick it up in Nehemiah chapter 5. He turned his focus to the religious reforms that needed to take place. First and foremost, because of the persecution that was going on, food was scarce. So the wealthy Jews were selling or giving food to the uh, poverty-stricken Jews. And when they couldn't pay, they took the children in slavery. It's called usury. First thing Nehemiah did was address that. Nehemiah 5. Then he addressed the needs of the worship of God's people. Nehemiah 7, 1. Because of the deplorable condition of Jerusalem, no one wanted to live there. So he, he got God's people to start moving into the city of Jerusalem proper with the, with the restored walls. And people began building their homes there. He reinstituted the autumn festivals. Nehemiah 7, 73 through 83. He led God's people in covenant renewal ceremony. Nehemiah 9. Wow, it's all going great. Then, for some reason, we do not know why, but in 433, he's been there 17 years, he goes back to Susa. And in the meantime, Tobiah has moved onto the Temple Mount into, into a sacred uh, room. That's where he's living because he's married into the priesthood. His wife's related to the priests. He's living there, so when Ezra comes, or Nehemiah comes back a couple years, with they don't know how long, a couple years later, first thing he has to do is kick Tobiah out, and then he addresses the issue of support for the Levites, because no one was supporting the Levites. They had to go out and farm to make their, their, their living. The Sabbath he addressed, and finally he addressed the intermarrying of the Gentiles, because once again it was there. Now, brothers and sisters, I give you this detail because Malachi addresses every one of the issues that Nehemiah had to address except the Sabbath which is why I believe Malachi was written after Nehemiah. So I placed him at 444. It could be after the second return at 433. But I, I, I tend to hold to 444. Nehemiah began all these changes, and Malachi was the prophet just like in Josiah's day. Jeremiah was the prophet to support the changes. Malachi was the prophet that God raised up to support these changes of Nehemiah. So, so brothers and sisters, that's the servant. Now, the time that we've got left... I want you to set a little bit with me back in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, we live in between. We live at that time, that difficult time of boredom, where it's easy to grow bored with Jesus Christ, bored with the Bible, bored with Christianity, where you, where you and I flit from peak to peak looking for something to validate our experience, whether it be speaking in tongues or prophesying or, or a, a worship service that, that, that the emotional level is so high it brings you to your, your knees. I mean, that's the world in which we live. How would God have you and I self-identify ourselves in this, in this redemptive valley between two massively significant redemptive acts, the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. I believe Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, gives us this beautiful, beautiful identity. Notice with me verse 1. Behold, you're never going to believe this. I'm, sent, I'm going to send my messenger, Malachi. Now, Malachi, Ma- Malachi, that was the name of the author of this book. But would you also notice it was also his function. He was to bear the word of God to people. And brothers and sisters, he's not the only one. We know Malachi 3.1 ultimately is a reference to John the Baptist. He's the fulfillment. He's the antitype of this type. 
But in between that and John the Baptist and beyond, God has raised up his messengers over and over and over again. And those messengers are not a formal office as it is the people of God living by and with the word of God in their lives. That is your calling. We're called to be people who bear the burden of God's word. And the burden of God's word is to take it in, appropriate it, live in light of it, share with each other on Sunday, share with those around us. That's the role and the calling of my messenger. If you want an identity, you think of yourself, I'm a child of the living God. What is my calling, God, in this time of where today is the same as yesterday and tomorrow will be the same as today? What is my call? Your call, brothers and sisters, is to bear the word of God, to be in it, to allow it to wash over you and, try and move you and shape you and mold you and make you the man God's called you to be, and then to take that redeemed life. It's what Ezra did. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, and to teach it. Then to take the redeemed life of practicing and bring it everywhere you go. That's the calling. I'm not going to read about Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He's, he is, he has, um, um, because the Lord has has anointed me to bring good news. And then in Isaiah 52, how lovely on the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news. Brothers and sisters, that's our calling. That's our identity. You're not forsaken of God. You've got a calling today. And that calling is to bear the word of God to your, to your, if you're married, to your spouse. If you have kids, to your children. Children to your parents. Children to your siblings. In your work, to your coworkers. To bring and bear the word of God, not necessarily by your mouth, but certainly with your mouth, but also by your life, proclaiming it, living it, upholding it, rejoicing in the Lord, in and through it all. That's the call of my messenger. That's what Christ gave us. You shall be my witnesses. Is that not what we have in the Great Commission? Make disciples. You shall be my witnesses. We are the messengers of God. And in that context, what is your job when it comes to people outside of you? as a messenger of God. This is where I think you and I can get discouraged. We think our job is to lead people to Jesus Christ. And quite frankly, if I told you right now, go out this afternoon in your neighborhood, knock on a door and lead some, attempt to lead someone to Jesus Christ, I dare say most of you would say first and foremost, how do I do it? I, have, I mean, that's beyond my, my, my bandwidth. That's beyond my, my, my mental bandwidth. What in the world does that mean? Secondly, if I were to lead them to Jesus Christ, what am I going to share? Am I qualified to do that? What if they ask a question I can't answer? And so, brothers and sisters, for that and a thousand other reasons, you and I say, keep my mouth shut. Would you look at the text? That is not your job to lead people to Christ. That's God's job. Malachi 3.1, behold, I'm, I'm, I'm going to send my messenger. And what's the job of a messenger? To clear the way before me. Your job is not to lead people to Christ. Your job is not to convert the masses. Your job is not to defend accurately God's word. Your job is to prepare a way. When I was in seminary, I had a class. We, we had a, a, a conference. Kennedy Smart came. He was a big wig in the PC at the time. And he gave a seminar on evangelism. He was known as an evangelist. I think it was Kenny Smart, maybe some other guy. 
but I think it was Kenny Smart. Anyways, we had these, these times where you could sit down in these rooms, that, what, what do you call them, these, um, where you'd have one-on-ones. It'd be you know, four or five or eight or nine with Kennedy Smart. And I was in one of those meetings, and we had a question and answer session with Kennedy Smart because he was known as the evangelist of the PCA, and, and people asking questions. And he introduced to us, he said, guys, brothers and sisters, you got it all wrong. You got to think of yourself in the in the in terms of function in the capacity of pre-evangelism. Do you know how many people it's going to take for someone to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? God might use use 30, 40, 50 people. Jack Miller, a person who I've quoted frequently the last couple of years. You know what his testimony is? He he was raised in a, in a non-Christian home or he was raised in a religious home but not a Christian. He wasn't saved. Came uh, saved later on in, in high school. He said, the thing where God first started working in my life, there was a Christian, a renowned Christian in their neighborhood. They knew he was a churchgoer. They, they, and everyone called him a Christian, a Bible th- a thumper. And one day, little, little, little Jack, he was, you know, second grade, walking out uh, on the street. And this man was walking. And they, and they sort of basically were walking next to each other just for a little bit. And this man looked at him and said, Jack, he said, yes, are you a Christian? That's all he asked him. And Jack Miller's testimony said, that little question is what led me to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ four or five years later. It's called pre-evangelism, brothers and sisters. It's called preparing the way before the Lord. Your job is not to defend, to stand up. Now, some people's job is, and they're good at it. Man, they can stand up in the, in the hottest context and, and defend Christ. That's not me, brothers and sisters. Okay, but that's some people. Praise God for that. And some people are phenomenal evangelists. Man, they share the gospel every day with people and frequently lead people to Christ. Praise God. But brothers and sisters, look at this passage. Your and my job is so simple. It's to say, God, use me this day in my life, lip and witness, simply to prepare the way of the Lord. And that is as simple as asking a fellow, uh, a, a, a child in your neighborhood, do you go to church? Would you like to come to ours? Or a parent in the neighborhood, do you go to church? Are you a Christian? Or at the soccer fields or the football? Whatever it may be at work. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking our job is to be world changers. It is not. It's to be faithful with the small things he's placed on your lap today. And if that's changing diapers, then change them to perfection. And do the work of pre-evangelism in the, in the soul of that child. Or the siblings. Or the parent. Or the spouse. Brothers and sisters, Malachi is a treasure chest. I have been so blessed already in reading this and studying it in preparation for the pulpit. And I invite you, if you haven't already, to start diving into this book. We're going to look at two through five next time. And it is the question of the hour. And I'll I'll steal thunder next week. The question of the hour is this. Does God really love you? Does he? Because I don't know, brothers and sisters. I look at my pathetic life and I see a lot of things that seem to testify that God doesn't love me. That he somehow finds perverse delight in making my life miserable. Does God really love me? That's next week. That's the next section of Malachi. And the answer he gives will blow you away. Brothers and sisters, let's pray. Father, what an incredible privilege this 
is to open this incredible prophecy. They've all been incredible, Lord. But Malachi being the one we're studying now, Lord, we pray you would feed us richly, deeply, and long. And this your word. God, may this prophecy speak to us. We know it's living and active by your spirit. Use this, O Lord, to mold and shape us. That as we live in this long, long road before us, in the desert between redemptive waterings, God, give us the grace not to grow weary or lose heart, but to be bolstered and to be built up and encouraged by the incredible, simple messages you gave your people at this time in this place that you tell us in the New Testament has been written for our instruction, living in the last days. Father, bless us. Thank you that you've made us your messengers. Thank you, Lord, that 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 we are the object, therefore, of your delight. For how could we be your messenger without you delighting in us? Thank you, Lord, for this exalted position that we have servants of the living God. God, may that be an encouragement to us. May we leave here built up, praising you for who you are, for what you are to us, what you've done. And Lord, be used by you simply to be faithful in this seemingly insignificant under your glory and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's go to the table of the Lord. I will read to you.